So we've been in this series called Renew. How many of you guys have been around for the Renew series? Been enjoying it a lot. Really exciting. It's our first series as we've jumped back in after my parents, J.O. and Ray Dean, uh, came, came back from their sabbatical. Um, super, super excited uh, about it. I've been really enjoying it. Um, I'm going to talk to you guys today about awe and wonder. Awe and wonder. And the heart of this message, the heart of this message is that God would renew our awe and wonder for him, okay? And I want, and I want to do that very, it's, it's, very, it's very specific though, because that, that, that could sound pretty, uh, pretty generic, but it's very specific, three ideas that I want to discuss today, and I want to draw your attention to three passages of scriptures to, to talk about these ideas. The first idea is to show that God is and always has been worthy of our awe and wonder. So that's the first concept we'll deal with. The second concept is what it looks like for us to be in awe and wonder under the new covenant. What does that mean for us? What does awe and wonder mean under the new covenant? How many of you guys are excited that we are under the new covenant? How many of you guys are excited to be on this side of the cross? I don't know about y'all, but I'm so thankful that I live right now. And the third thing we're gonna talk about is what, how is awe and wonder expressed in the, in the New Testament church? How is awe and wonder expressed in the New Testament church? So, we're going to read a lot of scripture today. I'm just going to ask you to stick with me, roll with me. It's all going to be right there, at least these, these first three passages. All the long stuff is going to be right here, so you can look on the Sky Bible or you can follow along with your own Bible, but we're going to jump right into it. Our first passage is Job 38. Second passage is Hebrews chapter 12, and the third one is Acts chapter 2. Job 38, Hebrews 12, and Acts chapter 2. So before we read the passage in Job, I like, how many of you guys, if you guys have ever heard me speak, you know that I like to give context. That's what we talk about. I probably talk, I beat, beat the scripture to death and then, and then we actually read the scripture. But I, I just, I really like to give a little bit of context so that when we read the scriptures, we aren't misunderstanding where they're coming from and what they're trying to say. So Job is the 18th book of the Old Testament, but it's regarded usually as the oldest book in the New, of the Old Testament. And you're like, how, how can that be? Well, the first five books of the, of the Old Testament seen as the, the, the Pentateuch or also in the Torah, they were actually passed as oral traditions for a long time before they were written down, which is crazy to me. That's a lot of content to pass down as oral tradition. But Job is, is, is known as the first written book of the Old Testament. We don't know quite who the author is. There's a lot of speculation, but we haven't confirmed who the author is. But we do know is that it is considered wisdom literature. It reads like a historical uh, account, but it's actually grouped with the Psalms and the Proverbs. You guys are familiar with the Psalms and the Proverbs. They're there. They have lots of nuggets of wisdom. Job is meant to be read in a similar way. It's wisdom literature more so than we read it as histor historical account. Does that make sense to everyone? What's really cool about it is this. When we read Job, we can look and we can believe and we can see that everything in there is meant, it's there for a reason. Sometimes when we read a historical book, I mean, it is all there for a reason, but it's, it's things that happen, and so it's, it's giving an account of the story. But with Job, we can look at it almost like when we listen to the parables of Jesus, every element of the story is there for a specific reason. And because of that, it can give us amazing insight into the character of God and our interaction with God. Job is a book of wisdom. Cool? So the general theme of Job, I, I think it, I, well, the way that I might summarize it is uh, it's a demonstration of the, the suffering of the righteous and the worthiness 
of God in the midst of that suffering. So it's a demonstration of the suffering, the suffering of the righteous and the worthiness of God in the midst of that suffering. In this specific passage that we're gonna look at from Job chapter 38, where we find Job is that he has lost his children, he has lost his great wealth, and he has even lost his physical health at this point. And, he's, and if you read Job, you can see, I mean, he did his darndest to try to have a good attitude through the process. But he comes to this place where he starts asking some questions. God, what exactly did I do to deserve all this? And then we see here in chapter 38, God's response. So these are the, these are the words of God that we're gonna read. Job 38, starting in verse four. It says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. I, I personally, I'm just gonna pause real quick. I, I love that God is sarcastic here. It's, it's, I, I love that he's funny like that. He's going, oh, okay, okay. You seem to know what, what should be done and what shouldn't be done and what deserves this and what deserves that. Why don't you tell me? Why don't you tell me about creation? Why don't you tell me about the origin of man? Why don't you tell me about the origin of existence? Why don't you tell me a little something since you seem to know so much about me and about how things should go? Let that be a reminder to each one of us. God's got game. It says, or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for glory. Or who shut in the sea with, the, with doors when it burst out from the womb when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Be my guest. God's saying, be my guest, Job. Question king. We're going to look at Hebrews now, Hebrews chapter 12, to deal with the second topic that I was talking about. Uh, the book of Hebrews is one of the letters of the New Testament, but similarly to Job, it's not quite confirmed who the author is. There's a lot of people who believe Paul is the author, and he very well might have been, but there's a lot of elements of Hebrews that are inconsistent with the other writings of Paul, so unless he changed his writing style quite a bit, it probably isn't Paul, but it might be. Anyway, what we do know about Hebrews what we do know about Hebrews is that it is a message from the author to the Jewish believers to encourage them to continue to mature in their faith in Christ while at the same time warning them not to revert back to the beliefs of Judaism. So the author's going, all right, Jewish believers, this is awesome. You guys are the way that the Gentiles, which just means non-Jews, you guys are the way that the world is gonna hear about Jesus. But be careful not to fall back into your old beliefs. Cling to this new hope that you have in Christ. So that's kind of the general feel of Hebrews. And in this specific passage, the author is doing this really cool thing. What we see in Hebrews, Hebrews actually talks a lot about the Old Testament. 
and then compares it to this new covenant. And in this specific area in Hebrews chapter 12, the author is reflecting on Mount Sinai. And for those of you who don't know, Mount Sinai is where the old covenant was given to Moses. And it talks about Moses trembling before God because anyone or anything that touched Mount Sinai at that particular time would die. So we're talking about the manifest presence of God in a very heavy, very serious, not playing games kind of way. But then the author in these next few passages brings up this place that he calls Mount Zion. And Mount Zion is meant to be a physical place, yes, the, the mountain on which the temple in Jerusalem is, but it's also very clearly in this passage a representation of the spiritual place of heaven. So the author just got done talking about Mount Sinai, and here is his comparison to Mount Zion. Whew. Starting in verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. This is the part I want you guys to cling to, okay? Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, come on, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Boom. New covenant, awe and wonder. Finally, we're going to look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is an account of the early church, of the, the, really the origin of the New Testament church, written by a guy named Luke, who was a physician, and he was the Apostle Paul's travel companion. In the beginning of Acts, we see a focus on the original apostles with uh, clear leadership from Peter. There's a lot of focus on what Peter is doing in those first few chapters, and uh, his sermon that he preached uh, right after the Holy Spirit fell upon the apostles, and I just want to pause real quick. I find it very interesting and important that Jesus told the apostles to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. They were supposed to wait in Jerusalem. And only then, after then, was the New Testament church birthed. To make this point, this is not what I'm preaching about today, but it's important. The church minus the Holy Spirit is not the church. There was a very important reason that they were waiting in Jerusalem. Let's remember that in the American church today. The church minus the Holy Spirit is not the church. So anyway, the first few chapters are dealing with the original apostles and Peter. And then there's kind of a shift and we see the story of the apostle Paul's conversion, Saul, and then called Paul, and his ministry to the Gentiles who, once again, just non-Jewish people all throughout the ancient Near East. Now, this is one of my favorite passages of scripture, Acts chapter two, verses 42 through 47. And if you are a local church fanatic like I am, this passage is your jam. Let's read it. 
And they devoted themselves, starting in verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's us. That's the church, y'all. Acts chapter 2. Verses 42 through 47, beautiful picture of what we should still look like today in 2019. Will you guys pray for me? And pray with me. You can pray for me too, please. <laughs> I receive, <laughs> but please pray with me. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for your beautiful word. Thank you that we can lean in and trust your word. Lord, we pray today that you would open our hearts, make our hearts good soil for what you would say Lord, anything that I add or anything that I say that's off, I pray that it would fall to the ground and be forgotten and your truth would stand. Your truth, God, would stick with us and would transform us from the inside out. Lord, I pray your heart would be on display in this place today. We love you. We thank you for your presence with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I already told you guys, my parents are J.O. and Ray Dean. They're our lead pastors. They're amazing folks. If you know them, you know they're awesome. What I love about my parents, one thing I love about them is the same people that you see on the front row here are the same people behind closed doors at home. You never have to worry about that. And I can attest to that because I'm their kid. But I've always, what's been really cool is my, my parents are obviously my parents, but I've had the blessing of, of them being my close friends throughout my whole life. Some of my best friends are my mom and dad. And I know that not every son or daughter can say that, and so I don't want to take that for granted. But I've really appreciated that growing up. When I was 14, 13 years ago, we moved here to start a church, part of the city. And at that time, at 14 years old, my parents, who were also my very close friends, became my pastors. And that was a new level of complexity that we worked through. And I think a lot of the working through was probably me as a high schooler. How many of you guys remember high school? Let me just tell you something. First of all, I was a knucklehead in high school. Secondly, I have so much hope for high schoolers. So can I just speak to all the parents out there right now who are pulling your hair out because your high schoolers are being strange? There is so much hope. There is so much hope. Do not stop believing for your high school student. Do not stop contending for them because I was an idiot. And God grabbed hold of me and pulled me out of the muck that I was in. And he can do the same thing for your high school student. Please do not give up on your high schooler. Again, not what this message is about, but somebody needs to hear that in this place this morning. So I was in high school. They became my pastors. That was, that was cool. It was hard, but it was cool. And then what I didn't see coming was when I was 22 years old, two years after I graduated from college, I came to work here full time at Heart of the City. So now I got my parents my really close friends, my pastors, and my bosses. And they're all the same two people. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> no, it really is. It really is great. Seriously, it's great. I, w- I honestly wouldn't have it any other way. My life is a dream. But it's complicated. It's a complicated dream. <laughs> um, it's 
Sometimes I don't wear the right hat. You know, I go into a situation and I'm like, son, employee, disciple, friend, what in the world am I supposed to be in this conversation? And I put my foot in my mouth all the time. You can ask my parents. I put my foot in my mouth all the time. I mess up and I forget which hat I'm supposed to wear. And sometimes, because our relationship is so close, so intimate, so open, I forget that my primary role in their life is a son and my primary job as a son is to honor them, period. That's how God set it up. Honor your father and mother. Now somebody needs to hear that today too. Honor your father and mother. And so when we were little, my dad would talk to me and Jamie. This is my little sister right here, Jamie Ray. Jamie Paul. This is Jamie and Topher. By the way, Jamie is 13 weeks pregnant. Baby Paul, y'all. Come on. I am so excited. But my dad, when we were little, he would come to us and he would say, Jamie and Seth, I'm your friend, but I am not your buddy. <laughs> and from a, from a denotative way, uh, just literal translation, those words are synonyms, right? Friend and buddy. But connotatively, we know that friend has, can have respect and, and an honor and formality, and buddy can feel kind of like, whatever, we're buds. And I think that what my dad was actually communicating to me and my sister was, our relationship is one of intimate love but it is not one of irreverent familiarity. I'm gonna say that again. Our relationship is one of intimate love, but it is not one of irreverent familiarity. And I think that just maybe, just maybe, God might be coming to the Western church today and saying, I am your friend, but I am not your buddy. And our relationship is one of intimate love. Oh, yes, closeness. Oh, yes, deep, agape. But not irreverent familiarity. Don't you get used to me. Don't you get used to me. So I want to take a look at Job. And uh, Job's, Job's a cool guy. And I, honestly, I think I can actually say that very safely because God himself in chapter 1 says that he was upright and blameless. I don't know about you, but coming from the most high, that's, that's, that's a pretty high compliment. And so we know from the outset that Job's character is good. It's, it's already set in place. Job's character is good. And uh, God, even so much so that God shows Job off to the devil in a way. Satan is talking to him, and he's like, God's like, and I'll, I will never quite understand. I try to picture this conversation. I'm just going. And he goes, have you considered my servant Job? And immediately, immediately, Satan questions Job's character because he is the accuser, and that's what he does. We've got to pause there, too. He is the accuser. If what you are feeling in your life right now is accusation and guilt and shame, that is not God speaking over you. That is the devil telling lies to you. Let, me tell, let me tell you the difference. I heard it expressed so beautifully the other day, the difference between the lies of the enemy coming to accuse and the Holy Spirit coming to bring true, beautiful conviction is this. Here's where the devil comes. The devil comes to you, tells you you messed up, and you go, oh my gosh, I messed up. I hope dad doesn't find out. 
But the Holy Spirit comes, brings conviction, and you go, oh my gosh, I messed up. I gotta talk to dad. I gotta talk to dad. The Holy Spirit's conviction will always lead you a step closer to God, never to make you hide from him. So the enemy is accusing Job, and God already knows Job's character. We know that. Let me remind you, God knows your character. When you're going through a storm, when you're going through a trial, when you're going through a test, it is not because he does not know how you are going to respond, friend. God already knows. I think sometimes it's not that God has us go through these things so that he can find out how we're going to respond, but so that we can find out how we're going to respond. He's teaching us something about ourselves, not wondering, oh, I wonder how this is going to pan out. That's not the God we serve. And so Job is suffering, and he's really doing his best, but he comes to this place, and finally he's like, God, why? What did I do to deserve this? What did I do? And, you know, I, I think that if, if I can take a, a little bit of creative liberty, I'm, this is not scripture, but I think that the, the, the message, the, 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 the lesson that he was getting across to Job and to us, remember, Job is a book, it's, a, it's, it's wisdom literature, it's meant to be read. It's meant for us to see it. The lesson, I think, is that God is above the reproach of man. And he actually doesn't owe anyone any explanations. Why? Because you could go, wait, 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 wait. That doesn't, that, doesn't, that doesn't compute because he's God. He's the almighty. He's the beginning and the end. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the great I am. He's the creator. He is holy by nature. He is worthy by intrinsic value, meaning he has value in and of himself. We can't put any more value on God. He is already infinitely precious and valuable. And he is righteous by definition. He is the standard. He is the line against which everything else in existence is measured. He is above the reproach of man. And I think what the message that God was getting across to Job, even though these aren't his words, was something like, Look, Job, I love you, son, and you're doing great. I mean, did you, did you see when I, when I called you blameless and upright? I mean, you're really doing great. But don't forget who you're talking to. Now, I know it might be hard for you to wrap your mind around this because I designed your mind, so I know. But I'm actually not subject to your critique. You see, I made you. And I made everyone that came before you. And I made everything that you see, taste, touch, and feel. I know every beginning. I know every process. I know every possibility. And I know every end. And so, Job, the best thing that you can do right now, son, is stand in awe of me and love me and trust that I just might know what I'm doing. And trust that what I'm doing is good because that's who I am. I'm good. And if you're not familiar with the story of Job, he repents and he says this. After he hears the response of God, he says, <clears throat> therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know.
I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. And if you don't know the end of the story, God restores to Job twice what he had. And the story of Job reminds me, if I were to look at it in 2019, it reminds me of this thing that I hear often, way too often. And it's things like this, and I probably said things like this, honestly. I don't know, I can't remember, but I probably have. I would never believe in a God who, if God is really good, then what? You see, I think sometimes we've placed the focus so much on the loving, accessible, accepting element of God, which is true, and we need to share that with people. We need to share his love. We need to share his acceptance. We need to share that he goes after the 99 to find the one. Absolutely. But in the midst of that, I've found that sometimes we avoid the more difficult truths about God, and we avoid the mystery. Because mystery by nature, is difficult to talk about. It's difficult to understand and explain. One of my favorite teachers, this isn't scripture, but one of my favorite teachers, he says this, his name's Bill Johnson, and he says, we are in need of mystery just as much as we are in need of revelation. We, as the children of God, are in need of being in awe and wonder. It's not just a bonus package. It's actually necessary for the way that we operate and interact with God. We are in need of the mystery. And I think that when we do avoid the mystery and when we do avoid the difficult elements, what we can do at times is that we can highlight so much the element of God that is dad and that is friend that we don't also show that he is judge and king. And when we go so much in this area of familiarity, we can begin to mistake God for a fellow man. And the thing about fellow men is that their character is flawed and in need of refining. But when we place that thought process on God, we get to a very unhealthy place. In fact, I would say that what some of us do in thinking that we are able to critique the character of God is that we create an image of our preferences and our desires and we remove the true God from the throne of our hearts. And little by little, Little by little as we do this, as we, as we fit God into this, my desires, my likes, my beliefs, my, my thoughts, my preferences, we're bowing in worship, and one day, we look up, and on the throne is not Yahweh, but a mirror, because the God of my preferences is me. You see, God is not worthy be simply because he blesses us. He's worthy of our awe and wonder, not simply because he blesses, blesses us, though he does bless us. He's worthy of our awe and wonder, not because our values align with his, although as we mature in Christ, I hope our values conform to his. Yes. 
And he is worthy of our awe and wonder, not because we see reality in the same way. He's worthy of awe and wonder because he's God. And so I think that a question might pop up at this time is, okay, okay, okay. But what about Jesus? Jesus was the son of God, is the son of God. Jesus is the son of God, and he was the physical manifest- manifestation and the, um, the representation of God in the flesh, okay? So shouldn't we be able to discern the character, the, the morals and the ethics of God through looking at the, lives and te- the life and teachings of Jesus? And shortly, I would say, yes, we can and we should. But I would also pair it with this caveat, and that is that the teachings and life of Jesus is often cherry-picked taken out of context, and there is an image of Jesus out in the world, in the Western world, that is not worthy of his name. And I think Hebrews chapter 12 actually addresses this question very well, talking about what this awe and wonder is in the new covenant. In comparing Israel to Mount Sinai under the old covenant with the church or believers to Mount Zion under the new covenant, the author shows that the new covenant that we are under in Christ is a superior covenant. Amen? The new covenant is a superior covenant. It is a covenant in which we are covered by the blood of Christ. We are made righteous not by what we do, but because of Jesus' sacrifice, and we are being made perfect. That's some really good news. That is hope for humanity. By the very same token, the author reminds us that the God of Mount Sinai is the God of Mount Zion. And that he still does not play patty cake with sin. He is still holy and jealous over us. You see, we have this great assurance in Christ and we should rejoice in it. Absolutely. I am so thankful that I'm not saved by what I can do. But let's not make the mistake of thinking that under the new covenant, that God has become a pushover parent because he most certainly has not. Intimate love, yes. Irreverent familiarity, no. I want to read the last two scriptures of Hebrews chapter 12 because I think it gives us such a good picture of what our reasonable response should be in light of this truth. It says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. New Testament, y'all. God is merciful. God is gracious. He's loving. He does leave the 99 to go after the one. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's made a way for us to be in relationship with him. But he is also a consuming fire. He is also a consuming fire. So how do we live in this tension where we stand as a beacon of hope on this earth And we do tell people the mercy and the grace and the love and the compassion of God and how much he wants to be in a relationship with him while at the same time not watering down the fullness and the wholeness of his character. 
Well, I think that this is one of the reasons I love Acts chapter two because it is a snapshot of the New Testament church. What does that look like? So we're gonna kind of read back through verses 42 through 47 from Acts chapter two, but I'm, I'm just going to read these 10 elements that I see, 10 elements of the New Testament church. And then we're gonna focus on two of them. Teaching of scripture, breaking bread and fellowship, prayer, living in awe, signs and wonders, gratitude and generosity, regularly meeting together, praising God, having favor with people, and a continual addition of those being saved. That should be us, all of it. And there's two that I think of those 10 that have been a little bit, or a lot of bit, neglected in the Western church. And you might be able to guess them because you live in the same nation that I do. And that is being in awe in signs and wonders. Critical elements to the functionality of the New Testament church, often missing from our churches. Living in awe and signs and wonders. See that word awe, the Greek word there, which that's where, that's the, that's the original language. The Greek word there is phobos, where we get the word phobia. In the Greek, awe and fear, same word. I make that point because what I wanna remind us is that Jesus coming on the scene is not the end of the fear of God. I'll say it again. Jesus coming on the scene is not the end of the fear of God. Now, don't get me wrong, because I know there's some of you who are like, oh my gosh, what kind of doctrine is that? I'm not talking about a fear that creates anxiety. I'm not talking about a fear that creates insecurity. I'm not talking about a fear that creates worry. I'm talking about a fear that inspires honor and inspires reverence and inspires awe. I'm talking about the fear that says, oh my goodness, how wonderful is this place? I spoke out of misunderstanding, things too wonderful for me. I'm talking about that kind of fear and awe, that kind of phobos. The church that God had in mind is a church in awe. And the second one, signs and wonders. I don't think it's any mistake that signs and wonders are mentioned in the same sentence with the people being in awe. I think there's a very close relationship between people standing in awe and the signs and wonders. You see, I'm, I'm a little bit concerned about, um, about the Western church. I'm just a little bit concerned that we have become really, really good at being a successful nonprofit organization. We've got our motivational speeches down. Community outreach, yeah. Humanitarian efforts, sure. Charity, yup. Benefit concerts, uh-huh. Social clubs, for sure. And I'm not hating on any of those things. I actually like all of them. I think they bear a lot of good fruit. But if that is the content of who we are as the church, we have fallen tragically short of what God's desire for us is because the church, the New Testament church from the very outset was a people of the miraculous. It was marked by the supernatural. It was marked by signs and by wonders. Marked by signs and wonders. And I find it ironically tragic that we see in the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of the disciples consistently 
Truth of the gospel, signs and wonders. Truth of the gospel, signs and wonders. Truth in the gospel, signs and wonders. Truth of the gospel, signs and wonders. And somewhere along the way, not from scripture, but from the experience of man, there was a decision and a doctrine that said, well, I think truth will do. I don't think God really expresses himself that way anymore. We're not really seeing it. So since we're not seeing it, you know, yeah, he just doesn't express himself that way anymore. And this doctrine has infiltrated the church. It says signs and wonders are a thing of the past. We have the Bible. I'm so glad we do have the Bible. But there's no place in scripture that would lead us to believe that because we have this beautiful truth that now we can abandon signs and wonders. No, it is a doctrine of disappointment. And Jesus warned us about those kind of things. He warned the Pharisees. He said, you've taken these, these paraphrasing, you've taken these, these traditions of man and you've called them commandments of God. And he warns us very strictly about that. He says, you know what we do when we do that? We nullify the word of God. We make it void. It has no effect. That's what he says when we, when we make doctrines from our experience. Let me tell you, friends, if you ever find yourself in a place where you elevate your experience over the word of God, danger. Be very cautious. Be very cautious when you elevate experience over God's word. Experience ebbs and flows. God's word stands forever. I want to take a look at the end of the same gospel account where it was in Mark chapter 7 where Jesus warned the Pharisees about the traditions of man. In chapter 16, the very last part of Mark, it says, so then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Oh yeah, all the church agrees on that. Jesus ascended. And they went out and preached everywhere. Yes, preaching, that's good. Evangelical church, yes, preach. But somehow we get, we get all jacked up on this last phrase. While the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. I'll say it again. While the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs, signs and wonders, truth of the gospel, signs and wonders, truth of the gospel, signs and wonders, truth of the gospel. Let me tell you, friends, have you ever considered that maybe one of the reasons we don't see as many wonders is because we're not living in wonder? We should be very slow to write a doctrine because of maybe something that is going on in our hearts. The church that God had in mind is not only a loving, kind-hearted people. It is a miraculous people. Sometimes when I get a picture of the church, when when I picture the Western church in my mind, please don't be offended by this next part. Disclaimer. When I picture the Western church in my mind, I picture 1995, I was three years old, but 1995, Christian bookstore, outdated carpet, cheesy designs, 
and I almost want to scream because I can hear the Lord saying, there is so much more. When did you begin to think so little of me? When did you begin to think I am so tame and weak? Yes, I am a lamb, but I am also the lion of Judah. And yes, I am a safe place, but I am also a consuming fire. And yes, I am near, but I am also reigning over all the heavens and the earth. Yes, I am your friend, but I am not your buddy. And you might be thinking right now, well, that was really aggressive. And that sounds, the, the tone you just spoke in makes it sound like it's bad news, but let me tell you it's good news because the goodness of God is not in spite of God's fury and his might. It is in light of God's fury and his might because it is in God's fury that he defeats our enemies and it is in his might that he makes a way where there is no way. If you have forgotten... If you have forgotten, let me remind you, you don't want to wimp God. You want God exactly as he is. Exactly as he is. Intimate love, yes. Irreverent familiarity, absolutely not. I want to close with this. C.S. Lewis, uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia, he... Um, he, he writes an allegory with uh, an allegory of Christ with a lion named Aslan. Are we familiar with Aslan? Yeah. Chronicles of Narnia? Okay, well, if you're not, it still works. So Susan Pevensey, one of, the lead, one of the lead characters, she's asking one of the inhabitants of Narnia about Aslan. She goes, is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous meeting a lion. And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's good. But we, we are in need of wonder. We should rejoice in his mystery. Rejoice in his awesome splendor that we can't. You, 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 let me just tell you something. You don't want to be able to fully understand the God that you worship. Amen. It would not be good for you. Right. <laughs> you guys stand with me. As we, as we sing this song... I would, just, I would just invite you to reflect with me because this is, I'm in this process too. Would you reflect with me on the areas of your relationship with God where your awe and wonder has grown cold? And would you join me in inviting him to renew it, to renew the awe and wonder for him in your heart? Let's worship.